Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Welcome once again to the Arrowman in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor and this is a podcast where we talk about all things media and journalism, etc, etc, etc. Remember that this is indeed a listener-supported podcast, so please visit patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in Stockholm if you would like to support uh, the podcast and everything else I do. One of the things I can reveal to you is that I've now found time in my calendar to start writing a couple of more regular columns than what you might have expected. So a lot of the time lately I've been doing sort of video work and that kind of thing, but now there's going to be exclusive Patreon only columns starting from next week so uh, get in there get on board everything from sort of two dollars to five dollars a month any support is appreciated so far on the podcast over the weeks we've talked a lot about journalism but it's been sort of a reporter journalism right this is the kind of journalism where you're out you see something you report it you establish the facts etc etc right but of course a lot of journalism isn't like that at all a lot of journalism is review journalism it's criticism it's think pieces, it's odd uh, op-ed pieces and that kind of thing, you know. Uh, stuff that sort of stretches the intellect and that requires a sort of a different skill set from what we would normally do. Um, one of the people that I have noticed in that field that I came across many, many years ago is an Irish writer called Sarah Maria Griffin. Um, I would know Sarah Maria as being uh, Griff, first and foremost, but also as being a creative writer. She's a novelist, uh, she's a poet. The first time I met her, I was blown away by her poetry completely, and it's just it stayed with me ever since. We actually did uh, a project once where we wrote 100 poems in 100 days, where we sort of alternated between the two. But during her career, Sarah has worked uh, teaching creative writing and teaching writing, but she's also worked as, a, uh, not a critic as such, but as a cultural commentator, writing about podcasting, writing about video games, and writing about things from a slightly different perspective than the usual sort of reporting journalistic perspective. I talked to her recently about journalism, about writing, and about finding her voice uh, and putting it out there into the media. There we go. Now everything sounds weird in my headset, but there you go. Sarah Maria Griffin, can you remember the first thing that you had published in the, the media or the mainstream media? Mainstream was a little bit later for me. I guess in the big picture, it's, it's not that late. It's actually, I, I think I was still super young. But I um, the first thing I ever had published, I think I was 19, and it was in a, um independent zine. I don't know if anybody else remembers zines, but it was in a zine that like a newspaper, but it wasn't a newspaper, it was a, a magazine. It was called Oh France, and it was distributed for free around Dublin. And I thought it was really cool, so I found their email address and I wrote them a little piece about cutting my own hair to save money, and they published it. And it wasn't until maybe six years, no, four years later, that I got a piece published in Generation Immigration mm-hmm. uh, in the Irish Times. The vertical that was publishing um, uh, different testimonies from different people who had emigrated during the great emigration of 2012. Mm-hmm. So I guess I was kind of a kid, really. It was a poem. Um, they, they distributed one of the poems that I had recorded for YouTube called The American Wake. And then after that, um, along with a photograph of me taken by a, a immigration photographer called David Monaghan, and then after that, I wrote a piece for them and it was put on the front page of the paper. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was like... I was it then, I suppose. Then you just 
are able to say that you've written for a big paper and then you come back again and again, I guess. So writing for Generation Emigration, did that open up uh, other avenues of journalism for you? Because journalism wasn't really the kind of writing that you were doing. You were a creative writer in college, right? Yeah, yeah, I did, definitely. Like it was, I guess it was, it wasn't journalism like reporting. I'm definitely not a reporter. Um, it was personal journalism. I suppose during that period, um, which again would have been around 2012, 2013, there was a lot of women's writing starting to kind of emerge online. Like it was very much the heyday of Exo Jane and Jezebel and and confessional writing was kind of at the fore of the internet. And uh, I wouldn't, in retrospect, I don't think my work was that, at the time was that confessional. I, I, I was incredibly guarded. But by the same token, um, it was nonfiction. Mm. and back then I don't know if we really had in Ireland I don't even know if we really had that kind of term to throw around like they were essays I suppose Mm. so um, it did open up other gateways because I do believe that the second you have a byline you open like you've proven that you're capable of doing a job well and of being read Yeah. so Sarah Griffin you can read her or you can read Sarah Griffin's essays at the Irish Times an editor will see that and go, oh, okay, she's done this before. Not her first rodeo. Yeah. So I'm uh, pleased enough that people continue to take chances on me. Yeah, but, but I think it really made a huge, huge difference. Hmm. Because um, that resulted in, you used to write a podcast column for the Irish Times until very recently. So it sort of opened yeah. up uh, some, some yeah. other areas for, for you there. Was that something you expected? Was that something you wanted to do? Or was it just something you sort of rambled into? Yeah, it was. that was a very fortuitous thing. So the previous editor of the ticket before the current editor um, hired a lot of uh, folks to cover pop culture and the internet different more I think unusual aspects of culture and uh, more ephemeral I guess Mm. and not that I think the podcasts are ephemeral they are in fact completely not ephemeral I think they're kind of I I think they're different from radio Mm. yeah I think they're different from radio as well Um, but yeah I I was invited to do it because I had covered I think I had done an article I think I was tweeting about podcasts or something Mm. And uh, I did like a 10 Irish podcast you should listen to thing for for a winter special for them. And then um, Lawrence Mackin, the previous editor of The Ticket, invited me on board to do a weekly column, uh, which lasted 17 months, I think, altogether. Not, which wasn't too bad, you know, for a left of centre weird covering, I guess, something that is, I think it is mainstream before, but definitely has become more so recently. Hmm. That that's a pretty good innings. Like seventeen months of doing anything in the internet age is, you know, that that's an age in itself. Yeah. You know? But unfortunately, yeah. like many things uh, in the journalism business, you know, an editor changes or a trend changes and that kind of thing, and and they put that on ice. Uh, do you have any sort of plans or ambitions, you know, to, to find a new home for that column? Is it something that you'd like to continue independently, or would you like to find somewhere else to go with it? I have another column coming with a different um, print, uh, a digital column coming with a print magazine that will be starting at the end of May, mm-hmm. which will look at, I think there probably will be entertainment in it. There will be podcasts referenced in it, but largely the subject of it is um, and uh, things you do in the world that don't involve your phone. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, the kind of central thesis. I'm always banging on about central thesis of things, but the central thesis of the column is 
kind of trying to pursue a life where we live in parallel with the internet and not on the internet. Mm -hmm. So every week I'll talk a bit about something that I did that was offline or not centered around my phone. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit of a, it's not prescriptive. It's just a sort of a personal, um, it's more, per, it'll be more personal than my podcast column. And I think that was something I struggled with a lot um, that I, I couldn't, my voice wasn't, uh, never made it past the, the, the edit, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really excited to do something a bit more voicey. Was that a sort of a deliberate thing? Because um, a lot of the stuff that I do is sort of news based, right? And basically, the the you know yeah. the, the central theme of that is nobody gives a shit what I think about anything, right? So you know, mm-hmm. the vast majority of my work is reporting what other people have said and did, and my opinion is kept away from these things as much as possible. Uh, were you mm. sort of fearful uh, in the beginning when you were sort of putting forward and saying, "Okay, I'm Sarah Maria Griffin, and this is what I think of something"? You know, did you sort of shy away from that, and is it something that you're happy to do now or is it something you sort of grew into I think I'll always be nervous in telling anybody my opinion about anything because we live in 2019 and I guess the polemic and the way that people talk about entertainment and information is very extreme now mm. um, and I, I do feel that it's a different landscape to offer a critical eye in. so my ethos with the podcast column was something that I read once when Isaac Fitzgerald started BuzzFeed Books, was that his whole kind of take on BuzzFeed Books was, we only talk about books we like. Yeah. That a bad book will go unread anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, we don't give bad reviews. What's the point in giving a bad review? Mm. Why not find something that other people haven't heard of and champion it? Mm. So ultimately for me, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I had a list a mile long of ones I would have loved to have covered. Um, but I would never talk about ones I didn't enjoy. Yeah. I never gave a bad review hmm. because what on earth is the point? I'm here to, the, the little job that I had was to illuminate things in a medium that people might not find because when people say they listen to podcasts, largely they mean serial, American Life or Joe fucking Rogan. Yeah. And... I tended to stay really hard away from sports podcasts, from political podcasts, from things you might otherwise hear um, on the radio or on the television, things that were left afield. Because I think there were, there were like incredible culinary podcasts. There were incredible science podcasts. There were really, really personal projects that people made. And there were tremendous works of fiction. Mm-hmm. There were experiments and weird musicals. There were all sorts of things you can find in that form. So I took it as my kind of, again, maybe my central thesis in that column Hmm. was to find and champion podcasts that people may otherwise never discover in the endless library of iTunes. Hmm. So that was my bypassing giving shitty reviews <laughs> yeah. but I think that's fair as well because you know if we talk about journalism as you know one of the functions of it is to tell the truth to power by you know giving a shitty yeah. review to a podcast that's not necessarily what you're doing right because often these things are independently produced they're people who are making a podcast mm. about something because they love it and just because I don't like it you know and it, you know you and me have a reasonably decent social media platform of our own to use and if we start shitting on people yeah. you know it, it's deeply unfair just because there's certain podcasts I listen to, I don't like the hosts or I don't like, you know, the host a particular week or the subject or whatever. But, you know, that's no reason for me to go and diss it. And like you say, a good podcast, like a, or a bad podcast, like a bad book is going to go unheard or unread. Yeah, exactly. And I think 
they said something really, really specifically subjective about listening to a podcast as mm. well. I think it's really, it's like comedy. I have always, always said that I'm a dour bitch and I don't like comedy. But I am actually quite hard to make laugh. I just don't, I I just, I feel like I, I, I don't get it a lot of the time. Yeah. So I think that podcasts are like that, um, kind of for a different reason. Podcasts induce something um, called parasocial interaction, uh, which is a one-way or parasocial relationships, which is a bit like what YouTube does to its mm. viewers. Um, because you, you consume podcasts by yourself. Yeah. Chances are, whoever is listening to this has their headphones in and is on a commute or is in work or is walking, but they're alone. They're not sharing this experience with anybody else. Mm. It's very uh, remote. And therefore, the kind of feelings or opinions they would have about hosts and guests would be much sharper because you're not sitting there watching a podcast with the whole family on a Saturday. Mm. Chances are many of your friends don't listen to the same podcast as you do. There's something people do alone and privately. So recommending them. I, what, what I found hardest with writing that column was that I, I couldn't be personal in it mm. because I, had, I did have personal positive thoughts and opinions that never really meant to cause um, about the context in which listening to these podcasts would be helpful or maybe a, a broader range than just a back of the DVD box style summary. And, and um, I, I think that it's a very hard medium to objectively criticise in the same way that we have film theory and we can apply all that semiotics of television. Radio and the audio is really difficult to deconstruct and there's no point in me saying I fucking hate this podcast because X, Y, Z. Now, if there's audio glitches, I will say there is an audio glitch. Mm. Or if the, sound, if the sound design is a bit wonk, I'll say it's a bit wonky. You know, if the sound design is incredible, I'll point that out too. Mm. If it sounds like a high budget table read of a movie that will never get made and they fucked a couple of hundred hundred thousand dollars at actors to make it sound higher budget i will note that also seamless <laughs> I, you know what i mean like yeah. i'm 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 able to give criticism that is not personal yeah uh when a podcast is produced at a level and with a platform big enough that my opinion functionally isn't going to harm it yeah but if it's a couple of lads talking about rupaul's drag race in their apartment every friday like, I don't care if maybe one episode the sound quality isn't great. Yeah. I'll listen because I like them. Or and I, I'll say that people should listen to them because they like them, you know? Yeah. Like, there's a very different metric for that kind of listening and that kind of consumption of information. It's not really... It's too new. Yeah. Well, it's scrappier. It's yeah. more... It's, it's functionally more punk rock. Exactly. That was the the exact parallel that I was going to draw. Is if you go back to the, so the DIY punk rock of the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, you know, yes. the, the grunge thing of it doesn't have to be polished. It doesn't have to have a great intro script no. that's read and that kind of thing. It just needs to, to connect with you on some level. And like you say, it's a very intimate thing to be in somebody's ears the way you and me are now, you know. So yeah, And you have to yeah. respect that with people. But on on the other side of the coin, you as an author, with how many books have you published now? Is it three? Oh my god! There it's was four. Yeah, the fourth one is just about to come out. Right? I, have, I have another book coming out next month. Yeah, yeah I have the, a secret book coming out next month. So I've got yeah, I'm like nearly finished my fifth book. 
Um, and I'm in a three book contract also at the moment as well for more projects that are like I, I, I haven't really been able to talk in detail about any of it but um, I have some many more yeah weird I'm in a weird situation right now <laughs> <But> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I honestly don't know how you have the time to talk to me it's, it's just nuts but when you think back <laughs> over the three that have already come out right you're yeah. at the mercy of, of journalists and critics and that uh, kind yeah. of thing as well have you ever felt that they were in some way unfair to you? Have you ever found a review that completely missed the point of what you were trying to do? Because like you say, even if there is sort of, you know, literary theory out there, like theories of literary criticism, you know, it's still very, very subjective, right? Yeah, I mean, definitely. One of the first, uh, the, uh, one of the first reviews of my of my first book, my collection of essays I wrote when I was 24, like I was a little squisher, a baby, like uh, completely eviscerated me and used a lot of very heavily gendered language and like it was really humiliating and I didn't really say much about it. I just kind of sat there, realized that the person who had reviewed it was older than my dad and was like, that book wasn't for that person. And that mm. was a really hard, hard lesson to learn early on that sometimes because of the mechanics of a newspaper desk, your book is going to land in front of somebody who it just isn't going to be for Recently, yeah. my, my, my most recent novel got a very hard review from um, a journal in the States uh, where the reader just didn't like my syntax because I'm not using clear American syntax. And that's yeah. fine. Like, I think at this point, I, I've, I don't think one bad review is going to destroy me no. and my career because that's not the kind of career I have. Yeah. I'm left to center and bubbling along and I, I don't think that uh, I hope Jesus I feel like I'm not, I'm not trying to incant anything but on a personal level it wouldn't destroy me yeah. like I understand that the things I make are a big part of who I am and in some, capa in some capacity they're an exorcism I also understand that they're absolutely not for everybody Yeah, I really know that they're not and I know that my style of writing isn't for everybody and I'm I at, th at this point I've kind of resigned myself to that and, I, and I've also resigned myself to the fact that I don't want to be for everybody yeah. I've been very lucky I've had, a, I've had a lovely time cool things have happened with my books and cool things are co coming down the pipe I'm, I'm kind of happy out really mm. in terms of the books I'm, I'm good again as long as you get to write another one then what what else really matters yeah, exactly. you know what yeah. other people think of the books that you've written in the past doesn't really matter as long as you get to do another one yeah um but yeah, certainly I am in some capacity at the mercy of journalists and, and, and uh, reviewers if I permit any part of my self-esteem to be impacted by that, I'm in trouble. Yeah. You can't really believe any of the good stuff and you can't believe the bad stuff either. No. It's what reviewers and journalists think of your work is not for you, it's for the readers. Yeah. And therefore, it's none of your business. Mm -hmm. It was funny when we wrote that uh, youth novel, me and a guy called Haider Haidari here in Stockholm, we wrote a youth novel about soccer mm. and uh, we specifically wrote it for an age group between 12 to 18. Now, you have to remember that some people in their early 20s read at a 15 year old level as well, you know, but we, we wrote it yeah, in the yeah. vernacular because we weren't going to sort of polish the language and we got sort of criticised for that by these, sort of, you know, 50 year old culture writers and we're going, OK, this wasn't for you. You're not the target market. Mm -hmm. And if you can't look at the cover of this book and work out that fact for yourself, then I don't know what the fuck you're doing re reviewing it, yeah. you know. Could you not pass it on to somebody exactly. who might actually appreciate it, you know? And I mean, the, the other thing exactly. was... Exactly. Assignments land on desks, you know. Assignments land on desks and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, I feel for me, the more risky things tend to be interviews. I had a very bad experience being interviewed recently and that really, that really changed my um outlook and approach on being interviewed and being interviewed at my work yeah. um reviews though 
there are going to be plenty of dudes who are not into the thing I do who will misread it and that's okay that's it's just a misfire and if they couldn't pick up your book and realize that it's for young people I don't I don't know it it was Uh, hilarious who does that who does that review help this yeah. <laughs> the thing it's like okay uh, you know you're uh, we describe it as we were writing books for people who didn't read you know so why they were being reviewed at all yeah. in this or the literary pages is just beyond me i think it was just a sort of curiosity but it was you know it really was kind of yeah. weird you know but uh, if we talk about your own media consumption right do you read a lot of non-fiction do you find yourself going through generation emigration do you read like you know the dublin or the london review of books or that kind of thing where, where do you get your your news your media from Oh, I read a lot of non-fiction, like I read, a lot, I read a lot of essays, sure, like if Granted drops one, I'll read one, I'll read a good essay in the New Yorker, I, I, I really should subscribe, I um, I read until my limit runs out, I guess. Um, I, I subscribe to a lot of different news channels and a lot of different writing channels online, um, I do think I'm in, I'm in an echo chamber, and I do think I skew Guardian heavy, um, but uh, I read lots of non-fiction, I, I try, I try very hard to stay away from American politics and to keep up more closely with local politics because those are ones where I can have an impact yeah um but I do get most of my news from from Twitter <laughs> I think that's that's kind of it's just it's packaged in the way there where it's just presented like the lead of everything is presented in 280 characters or whatever else it is and it's kind of it's not the perfect medium, but it's, you know, it's about the best thing that we have in terms of saying, okay, look at this, you're going to be interested in this, you've self-curated it and that, you know. What do you think of... Yeah, stand- you choose every follow yourself. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. I, I'm going back over them because I have this like OCD thing now where I'm following, I think it's a thousand and two people. And every day I get up and it's sort of, ah, no, <laughs> I got to lose two people here because it's driving me nuts, you know. But what do you think of the standard of writing in what you read in The New Yorker? Because it, it really is a, a different scale skill set to write to the length that they do in that magazine I think Hazlitt is quite like that as well the long read thing Hmm. I think there is a a standard gap and I do think that I think journalists are paid more uh, and given more time to produce the investigations and the work that they do in some of the big uh, I guess legacy publications you could call them now Hmm. um and I do think that that's the difference, is that you pay a journalist well to go and investigate something, you give them time. There's a very big difference between an essay or an article or a report and a think piece. Mm. And I I feel, I feel that very intensely. There are some writers who I'll, I'll read pretty much whatever they have to say because I enjoy their voice. Mm. But uh, people like Grace Laverty, especially at the moment... Um, Roxanne Gay just started a non-fiction vertical on Medium uh, called Gay Magazine, and uh, that's tremendous so far. Mm. Um, and that's all non-fiction uh, from what I've seen. And uh, I will sometimes just read people because I enjoy their voices. Mm. Um, but uh, like I'll read anything Caroline O'Donoghue writes. Uh, uh, and I, I think when it comes to the more serious upscale, like upscale maybe is the wrong word, publications that pay the shit out of their writers yeah you know that money investment and that's a standard Mm. if somebody says to you here is six grand to go and write this piece it's going to be very different from the kind of piece you produce if you get paid 50 quid like i'm sure yeah you know like so it treats journalists with a different set of um with a different respect i think Mm. and i think that the journalists who write for those papers 
are pedigreed. Mm. You know? Do, do you ever... And I, I, I think... Go on. You know, I was just wondering if you ever read something that you're really, really interested in and you go, this is great, the information is great, the subject matter is great, but Jesus, I wish there was just a little bit more thought put into how this is presented or how it's edited or written. Um, From time to time, I tend to click away. Mm. If I feel that something is empty, I... I um, I, I tend to disengage or I don't internalize it properly. Yeah. I think that certainly journalism could always benefit from a bit more immersion, but that always that, that kinda of pulls the everything into question then if you're if you're shouldn't journalism be delivered with efficiency mm. and truth rather than uh like colour. Yeah. You know? Tugging at the heartstrings and sort that's, of thing. And that's not so so Sometimes, unfortunately, it does benefit if it's a cold string of facts and descriptions, mm. you know, um, if it's not beautifully written, if it's clearly reported and not reported within a polemic or with bias, mm. we're doing really well. Yeah, I suppose that's the best we can hope for in a lot of occasions, you know, but if you at the moment, especially because journalism is so different now than it was even four or five years ago. Yeah, you know, like the way that we consume news the way that news counts uh the huge distrust that has been instilled in the general public regarding the mainstream media like the rise and rise of conspiracy theories mm. like good reporting and reporting with integrity it, it's 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 more valuable now than it ever has been if you were to give somebody advice because i know you've been a writer in residence you've taught creative writing and you've taught writing in dublin and in galway if i remember correctly among other places um if you were to give advice to sort of you know young aspiring journalists young aspiring writers who are writing non-fiction what off the top of your mm. head would be the kind of advice that you would like to give them um in their read and read outside their lane uh, read the read nonfiction that is winning awards at the moment. Read outside your country. Read the Americans. Uh, read books in translation. Read poetry. Read mm. is always my advice to young writers and young journalists. Mm. There are a lot of people who want to be a writer but don't want to read, or they want to have a book but they don't want to write a book. Mm. And I get it. I totally fucking get that. The idea of having a book is nice, and the idea of writing a book is not. But those two things don't match yeah. in terms of process and goal. And uh, reading is the way that you will generate ideas and opinion and sense of place and compassion and empathy, and especially reading nonfiction. Right now, we could all do with a lot, a lot more uh, perspective on other people's experiences and nonfiction, and the essay is an incredible way to get it. Um, read, dear God. Uh, the other thing I would say is, uh, essay-wise, if, if possible, with nonfiction, I always say to people to have references. Don't just write about, here's an essay in which I am recycling the empty Coke bottles from my waste paper bin. Mm. This essay contains eight paragraphs describing me doing that and why I am doing that mm. personally. Don't do that. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> Nobody wants to read, read that. Two paragraphs at least on the history of the Coke bottle. Mm. Uh, talk about art in which the Coke bottle is used. Contextualize your narrative. Mm. Don't just write about yourself. And I feel like I'm saying this to my younger self too, mm. who did it because you didn't fucking know any better. And there's only one way to like fail up, Griff. Jesus. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I would, that's what I'd say to my young aspiring writers. I'll fail up. Yeah. Um, contextualize your work and contextualize your personal narrative. Don't just write about yourself. Um, write about yourself in context. Write about your experience in in historical, cultural, political, artistic context. Uh, don't just tell your own truth. Tell something true about the world. Mm. We really need that kind of work now. And the other really important thing I would say to young journalists, especially women and queer people um, at this juncture, do not let your first piece of nonfiction be the worst thing that's ever happened to you. There are plenty of journalists who circle brilliant but vulnerable young people like vultures Mm. to look for your nerve endings because nerve endings and trauma writing clicks. Do not let yourself be cannibalized for clicks. Roxane Gay says that in her um, thesis statement for her. Uh, <laughs> That's the fourth again? reference, ladies and gentlemen. Her editor, in, her, in her editor's letter, you can drink on every time I say thesis statement. That's fine. <laughs> um, in her editor's letter for Gay Magazine, she says, we will not cannibalize you for clicks. Hmm. And there are plenty of publications in the world who would do that to a young writer. Do not let the first thing you write be about the worst thing that ever happened to you, especially if you're in your late teens, early 20s. You have a lifetime of writing ahead. Hmm. Boil it slow. Hmm. Something just struck me there that the first book that either of us had published, I wrote about the the Gaelic football club that we started, which was essentially the story of me finding myself in Stockholm. And you wrote about Not yeah. Lost, which was about you losing yourself or not necessarily losing yourself, but finding yourself in San Francisco. Right. My final question to mm. you is, how does a young person go about finding their voice? Because I think both of us were surprised when we found out that our voice in print was not exactly what we thought it was. Right. Yeah, it's a huge surprise. I mean, Jesus, I'm a science fiction writer now. You know, <laughs> I mean, I've always been a science. I've always been a fucking science fiction writer. Um, and I guess something I kind of say to people sometimes is that if you read Not Lost on Spare and Found Parts, they're the same story, mm. just in a different color. Um, in terms of young people finding their voices, the only way to do it is to hear as many other voices as you can and contextualize yourself within that. Mm is to, and I, I actually weirdly enough think when it comes to line by line voice for writers, it helps a great deal. Reading things out loud makes a really big difference because you can hear the song then and you can hear the bum notes and you, you can hear what's good and what's bad. Like discovering authenticity in the things that you say in text and in ink can be as easy as just saying them with your mouth because if something sounds fake or wrong or not like you, the quickest way to discover that is to just say it. Mm. Read it. Do you know? Just say it. Um, I also would say to other people who are seeking their voices at the beginning of their career, like I said before, read, but also don't rush. Your voice will distill. Your voice at 22 won't be your voice at 32. Mm. Your voice at 32, if you're fucking lucky, you know, you don't want your voice to stay the same. You want to let it generate and change with your own experience. Don't look for a defined, um, formal, solid tone that you stick by. Don't don't give yourself a doctrine early. Like, 
your writing, especially if it's about experience, should ebb and flow with your own experience. Mm. It should develop with you as a person. Mm. You know, but reading is the thing, I think, really. Reading is the thing, I think, and uh, you've got to agree with Sarah Maria Griffin there. I was just thinking there was just listening back to that recording that uh, it's actually a shame that she doesn't do sort of as, as much performance poetry or poetry as she used to do. I know she concentrates an awful lot on writing and uh, her following her Twitter feed is always a very good idea because you can see the sort of the process and what she goes through and uh, the madness of her cat and all these things in there. But it's just, it's actually fascinating to see, you know, uh, how she teases out certain ideas and then disappears for a while and comes back with something completely new and that kind of thing. You have been listening to the Iron Man in Stockholm podcast like it subscribe it leave a review but only if it's been decent like we said nobody gets benefits from a shitty review here um, go over to patreon.com forward slash Ironman in Stockholm support independent journalism if you can when you can and where you can and I'll talk to you again very very soon have a great week wherever you are in the world yeah.